Hello and welcome to another episode of the Voice of Wealth podcast. My name is Charlotte de Capoisson. I am delighted to welcome back Ed Sheng, Global Chief Investment Officer from BNP Paribas Wealth Management. Hello Ed, thanks for joining me today. It's my great pleasure, Charlotte. Are we doing enough to deal with the climate change issue? That's today's topic. During the United Nations Climate Summit in 2015, known as the COP21, 195 countries signed the Paris Climate Agreement. The main objectives were to curb the release of greenhouse gas emissions and limit global warming to between 1.5 and 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels. So these 195 countries pledged to do their bit for the climate. And in January of this year, 190 of them were still committed to the agreement. So Ed, do you think we are on course to meet this target globally? In a word, no. People may point to the fact that 2020 has seen a slight reduction in carbon emissions globally, but that's a one-off. In the same way that the global financial crisis, the massive recession we saw in 2008-2009, temporarily reduced carbon emissions. But guess what? Once the global economy got back to full growth, carbon emissions grew again. And that's exactly what we're going to see this time. Yes, the lockdowns associated with COVID and the restrictions, the heavy restrictions on transport in particular, have cut carbon emissions temporarily. But guess what? Once those lockdowns end and we resume traveling, not only abroad, but commuting to work, those emissions will rebound very strongly. So in my view, we are not doing enough by any means at the moment, Charlotte. Okay, so you say that much more is required to cut emissions. In April, US President Joe Biden said during a major summit that we are in a, and I quote, decisive decade, unquote, for tackling climate change. Indeed, Uncle Sam has pledged to cut carbon emissions by between 50 and 52% below 2005 levels by 2030, which incidentally doubles the previous promise. The leaders of China and India, two of the world's largest emitters, made no commitments on that occasion. Meanwhile, in Europe, a new deadline has been set as part of the European Green Deal 2030. The main targets are a 40% cut in greenhouse gas emissions from 1990 levels, a 32% share for renewable energy, and an improvement of at least 32.5% in energy efficiency. So, in your view, Ed, what are European governments and local authorities doing in the race to meet these targets? Well, again, not enough. They are certainly willing, but they need to translate that into much greater political will. And I'm thinking of two things here, uh, two examples. Firstly, the EU Recovery Fund, which was proposed last year to respond to the COVID crisis and regenerate growth, had a large slug of money dedicated towards investment in renewable energy production and infrastructure. Again, how much of that money has been spent? Zero, absolutely zero, because we continue to see bickering between the EU 27 member states before the money's even been spent at all. So first thing they can do, stop arguing and start spending the money. That's the first point. The more they delay, the worse this is going to get. Second point, they need to have much more internally consistent energy policies. To take one example, Germany. On the one hand, we know Germany has been a world leader in um, installing solar energy renewable energy, even though it's not that sunny a country. However, on the other hand, in their rush to get away from nuclear power in the wake of Fukushima, they've effectively used more and more fossil fuel power generation in the form of burning lignite. Now, lignite is not just coal, but it's a very dirty form of coal. So in fact, 
they've gone from a low carbon form of energy production in the form of nuclear power to one which is actually much dirtier and produces much greater emissions. So in a sense, they've shot themselves in the foot a little bit there. And the first thing they could do is look at nuclear power once again, as well as, of course, continue to increase the proportion of their electricity generation coming from the various renewable sources. But that in itself will be enough. I believe in the medium term, Germany and other countries will require more nuclear power to meet their goals. Now, we talk about this 1.5% target, Charlotte. Now, what do you think needs to be done yourself? Do you think we can get there? And more importantly, why do you think, why do you think it's so important that we stick to these targets? Well, that's a really good question, Ed. The world beyond 1.5 degrees C would mean more frequent and intense heat waves, droughts, floods, fires, and hurricanes, which all have devastating effects on people's homes, livelihoods, and of course the economy in countries where they occur. So poorer countries are suffering and will suffer more as climate change gets worse if we don't get our act together. Now, let's hone in on energy. There is a lot of talk about renewable energies, green power, and the countless environmental benefits. Rich countries are heavily reliant on oil, which has a high energy intensity. Now, there is a lot of pressure to move away from fossil fuels towards alternative or renewable energies, including wind, solar, and wave energy. But can we say that power plants are reliable if they are weather-driven? And are the 2030 targets feasible? Well, again, this is the interesting point. Again, this is, comes back to the discussion between peak load and base load in terms of electricity generation. We are electrifying our global economy, but we need to understand that we need a solution for base load as well as peak load energy. So that is, we need to provide a constant stream of, ener- of electricity 24-7. Now, the problem is, what happens when the wind doesn't blow and the sun doesn't shine? This is the big question. So the first answer is, well, you need much greater battery and electricity storage of one sort or another, whether it be by industrial scale batteries, whether it be via hydroelectric, because what you can do is you can pump water uphill when you have lots of lots of renewable energy. And of course, when there is no wind and no sun, then you can allow the water to flow back downhill and generate hydroelectricity. So you're using water as a form of natural battery. You can also do this using gravity, using massive concrete blocks. The idea being you could use renewable energy when it's plentiful to hoist concrete blocks up giant cranes. And then what you could do when, there's, when you have no sun and no wind is allow these concrete blocks under the force of gravity to fall back to the ground, thereby generating, turning that potential energy into kinetic energy via motors. So there are solutions, and no doubt there will be other solutions, but I still think ultimately that provision of base load will still need to be done via another source, whether it be a green carbon form, like a green form of natural gas, such as those proposed by the Middle East, by Oman or Qatar, uh, or for instance, nuclear power and I come back to nuclear power again and I still think that notwithstanding Fukushima we see statistically it's one of the safest forms of electricity generation in terms of deaths related to nuclear power for instance from accidents and if you talk about energy intensity uranium has the highest one of the highest forms of energy intensity of any material known to man so I think I think those are some of the solutions we need to be looking at. Okay so obviously we're looking at energy, but and indeed an important issue is storage 
do we really have the necessary infrastructure to store all this energy that we're producing? I remember what happened last February in Texas. The city suffered a blackout lasting several days following a series of severe winter storms sweeping across the US and an extended cold spell, which drove up the demand for electricity. Some people blamed renewable energy sources and indeed some wind turbines did freeze, but it was more about unreliable power grids and the fact that Texas is the only state with its own standalone electricity grid. So what is the solution for storage, do you think? Well, as I said, there are several. I mean, I wouldn't, as, as you've pointed out, I would not use Texas as uh, an example because it's quite a unique example. Um, but I do think we need more smart grid technology to be able to direct electricity to where it's needed at the time in, in a country or, you know, networked within a number of states. So that's smart distribution of energy that's very important because you may have too much in one place and not enough in another so you need smart grids to be able to redistribute that so that everyone has enough firstly but i do think secondly it's not just about storage it's also about energy economy um, the, the, the the actually the easiest thing to do is not to use so much electricity in the first place it's as simple as that if we use less rather than more then this becomes less of an issue naturally and, and what i'm thinking about are things that we can all do maybe use the car less, for instance, heat our houses less, or where it's hot, use less air conditioning. So in other words, when it's cold, put on a jumper as opposed to turn up the heat. And when it's too hot, again, put up with the heat or just wear a t-shirt and uh, not and resist the temptation to turn on air conditioning because air conditioning, as, a, as an example, is extremely energy intensive. And in fact, in the US, more energy is used in air conditioning in the summer than heating in the winter. It's that scale we're talking about. Air conditioning is a huge problem. So I think it's something we need to live with. Maybe we need to live as human beings with greater variation of temperature, not assume that we can have perfectly controlled 21 degrees room temperature all the time inside. But also there are things we can do in the design of buildings, not only homes, but offices. For instance, we can put types of glass that reflect the, the sun when it gets too hot, but it can allow the sun to penetrate when it's cold. So there are types of smart glass that you can use in buildings to allow that to help the temperature be controlled without the need for heat, so much heating or air conditioning. So there are a number of solutions. I think we could think about personal economies. You know, do we need to make that journey? Or if we need to make that journey, can we maybe avoid using a car and use other forms of transport, like a bicycle, for instance, which requires no electricity or no fossil fuels at all? And I think that's where our personal responsibility becomes more important if we're to combat climate change. Yes, exactly. I think <clears throat> that's the thing. I think if people do care, then they can undertake actions in their daily lives. And that, that's important. One thing you didn't actually mention was the shopping and eating habits. We can eat less meat and use the short circuit of food supply chains, for example, buying directly from a farmer. I mean, I live in the countryside, so that theory i could actually do that exactly and, and saving water as well yeah and, and these are all better for you as well i mean if you think about eating locally not only do you save all the transport the wrapping the plastics but as you say it's actually probably better quality food so maybe what we need to learn to do is eat with the seasons we cannot necessarily expect to have perfectly red strawberries available any time of the year that's just not natural maybe we should eat the fruit and vegetable that is in season at that time of year and if we did that and ate more locally we could reduce the carbon footprint of, of our food and of, of agriculture potentially enormously at least in mm. the developed world 
Exactly. And, and save water as well, because only 2.5% of water on the earth is fresh water. And of this, over two thirds is frozen in glaciers and polar ice caps. So when you get that figure into your head, it's, re it's really important to, to save water, actually, just on a daily basis. And I'd like to just ask you, Ed, about how people can invest in these subtrends. Well, I think we've mentioned plenty there. Obviously, we could talk about mobility. So there are plenty of funds and ETFs that deal with mobility, particularly electrifying transports, not just cars, but obviously we need to think about lorries, buses, so heavy duty vehicles. And on top of that, also other forms of personal transport, which can be electrified, such as electric bikes, e-scooters and so on. So there is a whole industry growing very quickly there, which I think we can, we can invest in using funds and ETFs. A second subtrend you can invest in is the future of food. So we've talked about perhaps plant-based foods, so the more the growth in veg vegetarian and vegan diets. We could also talk about plant-based meat substitutes, so the likes of Impossible Burger and Beyond Meats. And we can also talk about cell-grown meats. So in other words, that is a meat and fish protein that rather than coming from an animal or a fish, is grown in the lab using stem cells. That, of course, is much more ethical because it doesn't require the killing of any animal or fish. So those are things we can do. In agriculture as well, we can think about investing in vertical farming. So that's, those are, there are companies that invest in vertical farming. Now, vertical farming is a form of farming that's much more productive. In its, it can cut water usage for crops such as tomatoes by up to 90%. And you can improve the productivity of the land massively. So again, this is a much more technological approach to agriculture in which we can invest in some of these funds and ETFs as well. And in terms of water, I think water is a huge story. And again, it thinks about thinking about responsibly using water, water treatment, better irrigation techniques are all available via in funds that invest in water. Uh, both funds and ETFs. But I'm not just talking about investing utilities, that's less obvious. I'm thinking more about the smart technology behind better productive use of the freshwater resources that we have. So there are lots of funds, ETFs, single stocks that you can invest in, not to mention responsible and green bonds, social bonds, for instance, and, and green bonds, whose proceeds will go towards investment in these types of projects. Thank you very much, Ed Sheng, for giving this interview. Goodbye. Thank you, Charlotte. Goodbye. Oh, 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 oh,